With collective leadership, we want to see behaviors like four we've identified as the key behaviors of the boards that really differentiate themselves and are outstanding are asking questions, speaking their mind, displaying mature judgment in evaluating, and developing trusting relationships. And this is where you go from a watchdog board to a uh, sparring partner. You start to really speak up, and this is difficult in Asia, right, uh, to challenge views, to uh, speak up and call things out and get into really healthy debate and even conflict in the board in the interest of coming up with something that is going to be uh, right collectively for the organization. That was the voice of Elisa Malice, Vice President and Managing Director at the Center for Creative Leadership. She's talking about corporate boards in Asia and how the time has come to reevaluate the role of the board member in order to establish a new kind of leadership culture. The center, better known by its acronym CCL, has made its mark as one of the world's preeminent leadership training and development firms. For decades, CCL has researched global leadership trends, then tailored programs to equip executives in the art of change and adaptation. Now boards are on the CCL agenda. Why? Because more is on the line for corporations today than ever before. The world is faced with bold new challenges, and what's needed is a bold new response. So say hello to the board. While CEOs and their operating teams focus on day-to-day -day challenges associated with running the company, targeting earnings, and managing costs, board members are being called upon to step up, assume greater responsibility, help set the organizational agenda, and fill its ranks with domain experts and technical specialists. While some firms are embracing the call and implementing changes, the vast majority are not. In a recent conversation with one high-profile board member who asked not to be named, I was told that in boardrooms everywhere, there's a feeling of privilege and an aversion to outside scrutiny. Unfortunately for them, the days of hiding behind closed doors might be coming to an end. Social media influencers, shareholder activists, and government watchdogs are all asking for the same thing. Greater transparency and accountability. The list of concerns runs long, and here to discuss challenges facing Asian boards specifically is Elisa. She and her colleagues have recently completed a year-long study covering six key markets spanning South and Southeast Asia. The results suggest that Asia's boards, by their own admission, are way behind where they need to be in order to lead their organizations through complex times. But first, full disclosure. I've served as an advisor to Elisa and the CCL team in Asia in recent months and therefore admit to a degree of positive bias. At the same time, the story of how boards in Asia are under pressure to evolve was just too interesting and important to ignore. Elisa Malice, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Steve. Great to be back. Last time we spoke, it was on China's leaders going global, I believe. We, we uh, discussed how some of the uh, Chinese companies were looking to expand and therefore sending some of their top executives overseas and some of the challenges and problems they were encountering. Today, we're going to talk about something different. We're going to talk about boards, boards in Asia. Tell us a little bit about uh, research that the Center for Creative Leadership has just completed on boards in Asia. We have just completed the most comprehensive study of Asian boards, and uh, it includes six countries, in fact, uh, so mainly focused on Southeast Asia. India is also included. We have Singapore, 
the Philippines, Vietnam, Malaysia, and Sri Lanka. And we have looked at Asian organizations, uh, 300 plus, and interviewed 107 board members in these countries. A mix of organizations, uh, profit, for profit, but also including some of the family-owned businesses, state-owned businesses. And um, we're really excited because we felt this was an important time, not just for Asia, but for the world. As Asia, uh, not will be, but is the center of the world already, uh, in terms of consumers, in terms of where the uh, capital is, uh, in many indicators. Uh, we feel that this is a time where we need to take a more comprehensive uh, and deeper look at Asian boards. But, but why boards versus leadership teams versus operations versus anything else? What's the interest and, and why the focus on boards? Well, first of all, um, leadership teams and operations has been something that is well-researched already. Everyone is looking at that, and uh, we know that there are a number of opportunities, a number of gaps. But boards is something that has been uh, researched very little. And uh, in addition to that, Steve, I think this is a time, not just for Asia, but for the world, where uh, some of the biggest challenges we're facing uh, require uh, collaboration across countries, across regions, also mergers and acquisitions. We've seen 49%, a recent ENY report, um, of the Asian uh, organizations here are planning to make a merger and acquisition. A lot of that is intra-regional. And so it means that the boards in Asia are going to have to step up to a much bigger responsibility on the global stage when it comes to things like climate, sustainability. They're going to need to step up also on the regional stage when it comes to how do you now manage a company that you acquired in another Asian uh, country other than your own or across the whole region with operations across the region. And all of these things need to be driven by the board. We, we liken it to driving a car at night in an Asian city at 120 uh, kilometers per hour where um, you know there are potholes, it's dark, it's very hard to do. This is what Asian businesses are going through as they expand, as they internationalize. And the floodlights for being able to see where you're going should be the board. Um, but that's not happening today. And so this is the moment in time where the role of the board is critical. And uh, that's uh, why we decided to do this research now. Can you give us just kind of a snapshot or a view on, on what the board looks like in Asia on average around the region? Well, first of all, uh, our respondents likened the board to an old boys club here in Asia. Which is an important point, by the way. I want to point out that this is self-reflective. These, these are survey results not based on some outward in-looking view of what best practice looks like, but rather what board members uh, and board participants said about themselves. That's right, Steve. And 54% of them said one or more board members should be replaced. Mm. Now, are they saying that within the board? Probably not. But they're telling us they see instances where there are board members who are not adding value anymore, who are irrelevant, and they're the ones who are saying, they're calling out, diversity is lacking on these boards. Um, and when we think about diversity, it's not just gender diversity. People's mind immediately goes there. Yes, we do need that. It's also diversity in terms of ethnicity and nationality. Again, many of these Asian businesses are internationalizing, yet you'll find they have a single nationality board. Very limiting. 
also generational diversity. 60 plus is the age group. Um, now, tenure rules could help a lot. For example, Singapore is about to put in a nine-year tenure rule to give opportunities for refreshing. The other big area we see is capability diversity. So we need specialized skill sets. At the moment, the boards here are made up predominantly of CEOs, lawyers, accountants, um, ex-military personnel. We need to see the expertise new frontier expertise in, for example, sustainability, cybersecurity, human development, human capital, and you could be bringing younger board members on who have that capability to uh, really make the board uh, add value in strategic ways, looking five or ten years ahead, rather than immediate risk and protecting operational risk, market risk, and that's where we see the majority of the time in the survey, again, the boards are spending today are on those more near-term, short-term things. So a fundamental reconstitution of the boards as they exist to get today in most cases is what you're saying? Um, yeah, absolutely. And um, we, for example, see that uh, there's a lot of brilliance on boards today in Asia. So you have uh, very capable uh, leaders who are making up the board, yet we're lacking brilliance on boards. And we see this with a number of, despite uh, following the uh, financial, the Asian financial crisis in 1997, a number of regulatory frameworks and bodies across the countries that we uh, have surveyed were put in place. So the rules have been put in place, but somehow we continue to have these very large uh, governance scandals. Uh, and without naming companies, we know across the region, you know, in Malaysia, in Japan, uh, auto manufacturer we have, um, a, a number of different organizations everyone knows, uh, and uh, shareholder activism, uh, where uh, more and more so, we didn't see that in Asia until the last five or ten years, um, shareholders are really, uh, especially on climate-related issues, uh, questioning and putting scrutiny to the boards. That is only going to continue. And so, in a way, we can see that these boards are failing um, and really need to step it up. It sounds like the perfect storm in so many ways. I mean, it's just it, it, on every front, it sounds like because of global changes, macroeconomic issues, uh, diversification, um, cross-border, uh, you name it, that there's reasons for boards to change. Uh, it, it, it does sound like governments are becoming a little more vigilant about insisting upon certain compliance issues and, and, and regulations, uh, firming them up a bit so in order to get that structure in place. But you're talking about something fundamentally more dramatic. It's about um, looking forward instead of looking back. I mean, just when you talk about the composition of boards today, about lawyers and auditors and others who are looking almost like uh, risk management, but, but you're saying something more. You're saying the research is revealing that board members themselves are saying we have got to become more focused on the bigger, upcoming, longer-term issues, but they're not. Why aren't they, and what is it going to take to make this change? Well, I think it's an evolution. And so, you know, the phase of putting all those rules and, and governance structures in place needed to happen. And it produced good results. For example, in the Philippines, we see that there's, you know, a definitely visible uh, decrease in corruption and a clear link between good corporate governance and profitability uh, and shareholder value. And there are reports on all of this. Um, but what, what I think we're saying is it's time to move to the next fa phase now, the next level. So the first phase 
ways was really um, just getting public trust. I mean, if we look at the history, many of these organizations were family-owned, state-owned, and the decisions were made among a very close group of people. So getting things like independent directors, getting the rules, the governance structures in place, uh, that was phase two. And what we also see as a bit of a watchdog phase, uh, we call that uh, the character of the board, is you know making sure the rules are being adhered to. Um, however, uh, it's not enough. So the rules themselves are not enough, and it's time to look at the human element, the people on the board, the culture on the board, and getting collective leadership to be happening. And that's phase three. That's where we are now, and it takes work. Uh, it's about looking at the pillars of the culture, looking at the uh, motivation of uh, why board members join, things like making sure we are doing capability-based recruiting, not just picking from an inner circle, uh, a closed network of family, friends, colleagues. Uh, it's, it's really about uh, um, pushing then the board to spend their time on the new frontier activities. At the moment, I think 54% of their mind share is on uh, the current risk. So there's a lot of next stages to take the board to in this phase three, um, which require uh, some time and effort. C come back to that term collective leadership. I mean, that implies that currently um, it's more hierarchical leadership. Um, what do you mean by collective? So with collective leadership, we want to see behaviors like four we've identified as the key behaviors of the boards that really differentiate themselves and are outstanding are asking questions, speaking their mind, displaying mature judgment in evaluating, and developing trusting relationships. And this is where you go from a watchdog board to a uh, sparring partner. You start to really speak up, and this is difficult in Asia, right, uh, to challenge views, to uh, speak up and call things out and get into really healthy debate and even conflict in the board in the interest of coming up with something that is going to be uh, right collectively for the organization. So that's the type of thing we want to see happening. It also speaks to, you know, what we were saying earlier about uh, the nature of businesses in Asia. Asia, at least in Southeast Asia, which are promoter-driven, family-owned. 90%, I guess, of the businesses in Asia Pacific, over a billion dollars, are actually family-owned. Um, and therefore, you've got the patron at the top, and he's bringing his loyalists, his best friends, his, uh, his, uh, his children onto that board in order to uh, be able to drive and get the decisions uh, made that need to be made in order to do what he wants to do. Are you saying that um, that model is breaking down, and therefore it's time to reconstitute with a different makeup? Or are you simply saying if an organization wants to go beyond its own borders, it's almost imperative that they do so? Exactly. That model is evolving. And so for access to international capital, for example, and this is where we see it really plays out. These big family businesses that you're describing are now internationalizing. It's happening now. And they know they need to have transparency. They need to have independent directors. They've been going through the stages of this. They really need to meet the standards to be able to gain access to international capital. They also start to have a responsibility on a regional and global stage. And so for all of these reasons, um, that approach of you know staying within the, the tight-knit circle and bringing friends and family onto the board 
board, um, part of that can continue, uh, but they very much have the urgency to step out of that into a more uh, mature way of operating into this, uh, what we see as stage three, and work on board culture, which again, um, we say there are four C's in the board culture and establishing it, and we almost see it as a roof to the overall structure of the board if we look at it as a house. And that would be collaboration, candor, challenge, and commitment. Um, what I was mentioning before, that sort of candor and challenge to be able to act as a real team on the board and not a set of uh, sort of you know, sages on the stage or independent brilliance, which is where we've seen the scandals, huge cost to the organization, where we've seen things go terribly wrong. You think, how could such smart people um, end up overseeing or missing this major uh, issue uh, going on in the organization, and yet it happens. And I think if we can bring that collective wisdom and a true uh, collaboration um, and candor and challenge onto the board, you would be catching some of these things. Also, we want the board to be paying attention to talent more. I think 41%, and in some of the countries up to 71%, do not spend any time right now, these Asian boards, looking at talent, for example. Um, again, more on the human element, uh, in addition to looking at things like compliance and risk and so on. You know, I suspect a lot of uh, board members out there who are listening to this might be saying, um, you know, the, the, the roles and responsibilities of the board shouldn't extend beyond governance. We should just simply be looking backwards and making sure that people are complying and that our financials are in an order. You know, isn't it the role of the leadership team, the CEO and his top team to make these decisions about future issues or future challenges? Why are you asking us to do it? How would you respond to that? Well, in fact, most of the board members we interviewed didn't have that point of view. They do see this need to become new frontier peer boards. They see that the organization will move forward without them, especially in an era of digital transformation. Many of the boards, for example, are lacking any board member who has expertise in digital. And they quickly see themselves being sidelined or irrelevant as the organization goes faster than they do. So I think that there would be a minority who have that complacency and that point of view. Um, most of them do realize that in order to remain valuable, relevant, and not become a risk to the organization, they've got to uh, move faster. And, and I think one important piece of this, uh, to, to just make it objective, is evaluation. 26% of boards uh, have no evaluation at all. And the majority of the rest, it's self-evaluation or peer sort of discussing or looking among themselves. What we want to see, there's a very small percentage that actually have external evaluation being graded, having roles that are clear uh, for the board members, and then being graded and held accountable. So the rules are in place, but how you actually define the roles of the board, how they should come together collectively, how they should be evaluated, graded, and look at themselves, all of that is in this phase three. That hasn't happened yet in, in Asia very much. Yeah. One of the things that was uh, really telling for me is in looking at the results is that um, what they're telling their chairman, uh, you know, face-to-face -face is not necessarily what they're telling you in this research so that they might be saying everything's fine, we're doing great, you know, we're right on point. Um, but then the research reveals that quietly, anonymously, they're saying we're way behind the ball. Like you say, just, you know, one or two or more need to be replaced because they're not doing their job, they're not up to speed. 
they have extended their tenure or if there even is a tenure. So it does sound like there's some dissatisfaction, which brings me to the next question, which is where is the incentive for boards to make these kinds of vast uh, or, or even incremental changes? Yeah, it's um, it's it's tough. I think the pressure is going to come from investors, from shareholders, from shareholder activism, from seeing the urgency to be the floodlights for their organization mm-hmm. not to crash and burn. That's where the real urgency is going to come in. Um, but in terms of incentives, we know that um, it's it's tricky. And what we want to look at, if we go back to this model of the board uh, being seen as, as a house and their various pillars, is board intent. So we really want those members up till now. We also, in Asia, could could characterize them as a country club uh, where you're there, you see your friends, and everybody wants to stay in the club. But we we do see it's at the point now where the board members need to question themselves. Am I really still adding value? Should I be here? Should I step down to open the opportunity for someone else? Uh, And so I think it's, it's about really then also asking questions like how many boards is it effective having one board member that we see board members on six, seven, ten boards. Uh, it's impossible. I think in the research, everyone agreed that three or four is the maximum where a leader can be effective. And so some things like that changing, and even for a female board directors, we see it's very hard for female leaders to be selected onto a board. But once they do, they end up being selected onto too many boards, rendering them ineffective again. So the intention of uh, the board members themselves understanding the purpose, the meaning of why they're on the boards is something that needs to be worked on. All that being said, there's not a huge amount of optimism in those that we surveyed that there will be significant changes to the composition of these boards in the near term. They do see change, but they see it coming slowly for some of the reasons we mentioned around sort of country club and old boys club. It's not easy to shake that. Um, but but there is visibility of incremental change, especially in terms of generational diversity coming onto the board. And once you do have a, a set of younger people with fresh thinking, with maybe some skills in the specialized uh, new frontier areas around digital and so on, I think that will bring more change as well. I want to come back to something you said before, which is uh, around behaviors. Um, and, and, and that's how boards are interacting with one another now is more a matter of being um, not wanting to stir the pot, not wanting to disrupt, not wanting to challenge openly. Um, yet, um, as we know, there is lots of evidence to suggest that um, when you in a qualified way, ask good questions, you can actually create a dialogue which leads to better outcomes. How much of this is about behaviors and methods of engagement versus um, just um, capabilities or competencies? I think both are, are very important. So we all, we've created in the report a uh, the sort of the DNA of a bold 3.0 board. And what you see is at the foundation, you know, you have your supervisory and stewardship responsibilities. So you have, you know, fiduciary responsibilities, strategic, but also you have these uh, new frontier, really looking at where's the organization going to go in five or 10 years. Around that, there are the uh, behaviors I mentioned before, but there are a number of skills and capabilities. 
And in that mix of skills and capabilities, we see new things like uh, areas related to sustainability, uh, to um, digital, uh, to human capital that play in. Um, we also see very important areas which actually rate low in terms of capabilities in many of the uh, Asian countries we looked at. Um, for example, empathy, uh, the uh, self-awareness, areas that could be improved, understanding and working on board culture. So it's a combination of behaviors and capabilities coming all together to create that uh, DNA of the board of the future, which we want to see. Yeah, I, you know, I can imagine, you know, people listening um, and nodding their heads and saying, I know this feeling. I've been in these quarterly board meetings and, and I, I'm familiar with these uh, shortcomings or failure to really get across the tough subjects or tough issues. A lot of people would be asking, with all these tsunami of issues that are now essential, where do we begin? How do we begin? What would you advise? How would you advise a board to get started on the road to what you're referring to as a 3.0 bold approach? We have a five-step approach that we're recommending. So the first one is to evaluate the existing governance maturity, uh, which is really the foundation. And that also depends on the country you're operating in, your organization, how far along the rules, the governance structures are. And so the first is to sort of evaluate that. You might want to do some evaluation um, on the board itself. Second. Is so, sorry, can I interrupt? Evaluation in what way? How, what, what do you mean by evaluation? By just somebody coming, a third party coming in, assessing the way that you would do a executive assessment and then create, provide feedback? Is that what you mean? Absolutely could be that. So there are a number of board uh, third party evaluations which will help pinpoint some of the areas I've been discussing in terms of how well the board is doing. Um, and, uh, you know, so there are a couple options there, but really looking at the existing governance maturity and, and doing some kind of assessment of uh, where the pain points are for that particular board. You could also assess things like the board composition. Do we have the right uh, skills for where we're going 10 years from now? So all of that. Um, so, so take stock of what you've got and then, you know, create a bench or create, create a, 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 uh, a benchmark. This is where we are and therefore this is where we want to go. So then they have some idea of what can be achieved in what period of time. Yeah, and that would be the first step and, and one that most boards have not done uh, in a comprehensive way. Uh, secondly, we would want to look at the in, intent um, and capability of each of the individual board members. Back to the pillar I talked about. Uh, are they on too many boards? Why are they there? Are they still relevant? Should they still be there? And um, also the capability. Are there capability gaps? If we look at the board as a whole, back to climate sustainability, do we really need to have a, a person with that expertise? And that's missing for us. So um, that's the, the second step. And isn't that premised on the board, you know, almost creating a, um, a, a view in terms of what they want to be? They have to do that first and then match the uh, individual board members to it? Or is this individual board member saying, you know, uh, this is right. Seven boards is too much. I'm not getting enough time attention. I really need to narrow it down. Just sit on three. Is that what you're saying? Is it is it self-assessment or is it gauged against what a board determines is most essential for them in the medium to long term? 
I think it's both. I think it requires more reflection and uh, honest questioning of the board members to recognize when they're really being effective and when they're not, and for the board as a whole to have those evaluation processes in place to call out and be able to say, this board member is not playing the role the way we need, and just as we would in executive teams, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and so uh, both of those. So I think um, once you've got the uh, intent and capability of the individual leaders on the board, the third is to assemble the compelling team and have the clear mandate. In other words, then, how do they all come together? What What is each person's role and how does it fit together? And have that clearly uh, mapped out. Um, and the fourth, and this is again the roof of the house in the model that you'll see in the research, is to have a culture based on trust and commitment. So actually working uh, intentionally on a board culture, the the unspoken way that things are done, how decisions are made, um, that is uh, cultivated. And, and that's where I think we move from individually brilliant board members to the brilliance on boards. And that's where we also then want to continue the cycle of evaluating the board. So those would be the four steps we're recommending for the boards to take. Yeah, so it's a journey. This, nothing's going to happen overnight. It's really just a series of endeavors in order to gradually and effectively improve the way boards operate and the way they guide their organizations. It is a journey, and you know, currently, uh, very little time. I think another data point we have is uh, capability development is one of the gaps. There's, I think, one percent of their time in in some of the countries spent on developing their own capability. Uh, now, there are uh, some boards attending sessions on uh, audit, on governance, and so on. Um, but we're just starting to see, and this will help a lot, uh, boards starting to have some type of uh, culture work, team development. Uh, and um, working on themselves as leader and on themselves as a leadership team uh, is the type of capability development. Working on their board culture uh, to get to a collective board culture is something we're going to see next. And it does require some uh, time and investment as well. You know, uh, one of the roles and one of the ironies of this is that many of the boards are stacked with former CEOs. Um, or people who've led large organizations. It's almost like, uh, well done, here's a board role for you now, um, because they've achieved something. And But in many ways, the role of a board member isn't to lead, it's to facilitate, to ask great questions, to inquire, to probe, um, and then also to make sure that you're getting the right feedback and the right loops and the right completions with the people who are on your board and then within the leadership team. What is the role of the chairman in your view, and how effective from the research and from what you discovered is the ability of the chairman to communicate well with the CEO? Uh, that's critical. So the chairman really needs to be um, playing multiple roles, uh, driving the board's agenda forward, uh, of course. Uh, also, uh, I think increasingly looking at the dynamics and the relationships of the board members, having that view to whether uh, everyone is playing their role in a relevant way, and uh, the trust and the relationship uh, between the CEO and the chairman, uh, and, and the chairman really being able to influence um, the CEO, I think, is, uh, is very important as well. Influence without doing his or her job. Absolutely. Yeah. So you see a lot of it. Elisa, thank you so much for spending time with us. Um, wonderful initiative, uh, great results. Um, if you want to access the research, uh, how would you do that? 
you can uh, just go onto the Bold 3.0 landing page at CCL, and then uh, from there, there are instructions. Uh, the research is available for all to access. We welcome you to do that. There are also some additional resources, uh, tools uh, on that page. So uh, please go ahead and take a look. Thank you, and wish you, we wish you great luck. Thank you, Steve. That was my conversation with Elisa Malice, Vice President and Managing Director at the Center for Creative Leadership in Asia. Revelations from her organization's Future Fluent Board Leadership in Asia report suggest that times are wasting. Perhaps most interesting is the fact that boards in the region know this is true, and still they resist. Why is this the case? Well, that's the subject of this week's Asia Insider Minute, that point in the program where I reflect on the conversation you just heard and raise a few additional questions of my own. Boards are no different from any other traditional institution. They draw comfort from doing certain things well and resist the idea of introducing new rules or responsibilities that challenge or, God forbid, confound the status quo. Nobody wants to be the first to change and then discover the dangers of doing so. That's a reasonable way to think in a vacuum, but when change is swirling all around you, doing nothing is an invitation to disaster. Environmental sustainability, the gender gap, income disparities, AI and the future of jobs, cybersecurity, terrorism, trade wars, migrant labor, nationalism, and the prospect of a zero marginal cost society. The list goes on and on. These are the kind of macro level issues that keep board members up at night. Take a look at your average board composition today, however, and you'll find that most are ill-equipped to address any or all of these new world challenges. No doubt, boards are stacked with successful business leaders, cautious lawyers, and detail-oriented accountants who pride themselves on checking the boxes and remaining compliant. But I ask, is it enough? I don't think so. In CCL's survey of Asian board leaders, results show that board representation does not reflect the competencies required to address the biggest concerns of the day. Survey respondents openly confessed deficiencies in five key areas. Developing talent, guiding innovation, leading change, learning agility, and the ability to anticipate. No one is expecting immediate change, but taking the first step is critical. CCL sees four stages on the road to greater board effectiveness. First, evaluate the current level of governance maturity. Second, reflect on leader intent and capability. Third, assemble a compelling team and establish a clear mandate. And fourth, curate a board culture based on trust and commitment. The bad news is that boards, in Asia at least, are way behind and overdue for an overhaul. The good news is that Asia corporations, whether family-owned or publicly listed, are renowned for moving fast and exacting change when pushed by government regulations or pulled by profits. I say let the tug-of-war begin. If Asia's corporations can't see their way to future-proofing their businesses by asking more of their boards, then perhaps it's up to governments to insist on change. Boards are the key. They'll either serve as the catalyst for change or fade into relative obscurity, allowing events to dictate while vision goes wanting. That's it for this week's episode of Inside Asia. I hope you've enjoyed the conversation. If you want to access a copy of the CCL Future Fluent Board Leadership in Asia report, go to the CCL website at ccl.org, search for Bold 3.0, click and download the report. 
As for our Inside Asia content, if you don't have time to listen to every episode but want to stay connected to the many ideas and themes presented by our guests, please subscribe to the Inside Asia newsletter. We track Asian transition and each week deliver new insights, point you to reliable resources, and showcase episodes on related topics. To subscribe, go to www.insideasiaadvisors.com, scroll to the bottom of the homepage, fill in your name and email, and start receiving our weekly update. Is there a topic we haven't covered? Let us know. To subscribe and download any or all of our episodes, visit Inside Asia at iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Or comment and rate the program on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Until next time, this is Steve Stein saying, coming from the outside on Inside Asia. Inside Asia.